0: SFM Literature with Nancy Richards. Hi there, SAFM Literature, it is slowing down the pace ever so slightly, but congratulations to our two comrades' winners. How amazing is that? In fact, congratulations to anybody who crosses that line. I think they're absolutely complete stars, all of them. So, SAFM Literature, it is. It's a show about words and writing and books and reading. And on the show today about Kabul, about a a festival founder, Provence, jazz, samosas and all sorts of other things. So how's that for a mix? And we will be crossing over to the Comrades and getting a latest update from that as well. Team here today in Cape Town, Full House, we've got Rob Parkin and Kim Winter. And in Johannesburg, we have Selma Chibi. And as you know, I'm N.C. Richards. Well, we do have a very full show, so let's get right stuck in. We're going to be starting off the show today... Our hero today is Christina Lamb. She's a British journalist, foreign correspondent, who four times has won Foreign Correspondent of the Year title. She's extremely prolific and uh, seemingly fearless. 27 years ago, she went to Pakistan, then to Afghanistan. And her book, Farewell, Kabul, is a very human, very personal account of political failure and ill-thought-out wars. It's a marathon book, so stay with us for that. And after that, the book club, a debate has been brewing, I'm sure you know this one, for a while now about literary festivals in South Africa, who is and isn't, who should and shouldn't be at them, with statements from writer Tando Kolazana, refusing to attend any more, as it were, white festivals, Wits University's vice-chancellor, Professor Adam Habib, saying that book fairs need to break the class divide, and many more people weighing in on the subject. Well, it's a very big, very important debate, and we have to hear a whole lot more of it right here on SAFM Literature. I can't think of anywhere better to hear about it. We have ours key players, and we look forward to when the time is right for all of them. But we thought in the meantime, uh, founder of the Franschuk Literary Festival, father of the Franschuk Literary Festival, writer Christopher Hope, had some thoughts on it, which he shared at the last festival, and we'll be hearing those as a start. Don't forget if you'd like to weigh in on it. Pop us a mail, books at safm.co.za. Or let us know on our Facebook page, which is SaFM Literature. Then in text, we're going to be riding the Samusa Express, which is a collection of 27 odd life stories, exploring the issues of marriage, love, loss, family life, cultural, religious beliefs, all sorts of other things. A fascinating study into how it is that women, Muslim women get married or have their marriages arranged. We're going to be speaking to editor Zahira Gina. She's going to be telling us the son of the stories, but also her own personal story. So it should be jolly interesting, that one. Then after the news at two, another world altogether, I have to say. You're going to be hearing from a South African-born writer. She's now based in Provence in France. Marita Fantafeva, her, her latest book is called A Fountain in France. Very lyrical it is, too. A bookshelf item today, talking to a poet about other poets. He's Michael Mike Alfred, and he's been reading a whole lot of other poets and has put together a sort of an anthology, not just of the poems, but of the poets themselves. So I look forward to that one. Then if you're a jazz lover, you'll certainly be looking forward to Nigel from us's offering today. He brings us the second in his two-part uh, documentary called Stories from the Cape Town Jazz Festival. Roger Webster brings us another fireside tale. He's bringing us the story of um, Henry Hartley, who's a big game hunter from Hollysburg. So there you go, Roger fans. And in our back page we're going to be talking to a playwright she's a young cape town playwright writer playwright and director she's amy jefter and she's uh, working on something called play riot so look forward to that and also to the play as always so just a couple of footnotes because uh, i thought you know just give you a bit of an idea of what comes into our mailbox from time to time Uh, thank you very much to mlondi mazibuko who sent us an email to inform us about three young writers Sizwe Zungu, Londi Mazibuko, and Malusi Mtembu, who've collectively written a book of isiZulu poetry. It's, a, it's an anthology. So thanks very much, guys. We'll uh, see if we can get on to that one. Thanks also to Lee Waters for the Walters for the link to the New York Times piece, which refers back to the, the uh, South African Literary Festival broaching uncomfortable subjects. Thanks, Lee. And uh, good afternoon, Nancy, says Zamile Nduli. Um, Find attached information about author uh, Ntokozo Longwani. Sorry for the delayed response response, and sorry too for not getting back to you, Zamile. And to Elizabeth Peterson, she says, Hi, Nancy, I'd love a chance to talk about Bobby. Bobby has been out for just a year. It's an English and Afrikaans book and it's sold very well. It's based on real events to some, uh, uh, to some extent and Bobby himself uh, is a dog and he was a real, an absolutely real, incredible and dignified dog who changed the lives of those who knew him and she suggests or somebody suggests that there would be no better way to teach our children compassion for animals and South Africans should request Bobby as a set work for children. And thanks, lastly, to Samkelo Latakisa, who says, I love the play. It's like a history lesson. Well, I must say, I've been loving the plays, too, so glad you're enjoying those. And don't forget, on the subject of plays, hopefully, very soon, we'll be finding out who won the Sunday playwright, or at least the playwriting competition right here on SAFM, so that should be interesting. Oh, last but not least, if you are in the Hogsback area or would like to get yourself there, there is a, a writing workshop called Give Your Writing the Edge. It's uh, been put together by two people. It consists of nine hours of hands-on tuition, including a literary hike and a demonstration of professional poetic theatre with a living dialogue of love poems, unique in the literary world. Well, if you'd like to know more, it's happening between the 12th and the 14th of June. So hurry now while there's space. And you can check the info on theedge-hogsback.co.za, theedge theedge-hogsback hyphen hogsback.co.za otherwise pop them an email Um, yep now i think that that's all i'm going to give you for now but if you have missed anything and you'd like to know more pop us a mail it's books at safm.co.za well enough from me stay with us SAFM Literature here on SAFM. Well, not many correspondents get to cover the same two countries for 28 years, let alone two wars fought in the same country by different superpowers. And that's how British journalist, foreign foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times, Christina Lamb, opens her acknowledgement in her marathon book called Farewell, Kabul. She goes on to say, actually, that it's been a labour of love that's taken her a very long time to get round to, not least because she didn't want to say goodbye. Well, the countries in question are afghanistan and pakistan where she first went 27 years ago as a very young journalist and christina incidentally also wrote the book or co-wrote the book i am malala with malala Yousafzai, uh, the girl who stood up for education and was shot by the taliban which in itself is a, a remarkable book well farewell kabul is an epic book dedicated to the memory of all those who lost their lives to terrorism or fighting it from New York to London to Kandahar. And we have Christina on the line from uh, from London. Hi there, Christina. Hi. Nice to have you with us and congratulations on your epic book, as I call it. Thank you. (laughs) You know, it took you a long time to get round to writing it and I'm not surprised because uh, where would one begin with such a thing? And not least, you know, the story is ongoing. You know, just looking at the headlines now, Kabul is it continues. So, it's uh, you know, it's not really um, it's not really farewell to the story, I would say. But you can, can we start at the beginning because you've divided the books, uh, the book up into four parts: getting in, the war, the good war, and getting out. Although you've started the book itself with the leaving ceremony, can we talk about getting in? How and why did you get in there twenty seven years ago?
1: Well, I got in there because actually I had met Benazir Bhutto in London and interviewed her while I was working as an intern for the Financial Times just after leaving university. And uh, she had just announced her engagement that day to Aziz Ali Zadari. Her flat was full of bouquets of flowers. She then went back to Pakistan. I got a job in a TV company in Birmingham and came home from work one day and there was an invitation on my mat to her wedding so I went to Pakistan for the wedding I wasn't going to say no Um, and it was an amazing experience and I became fascinated by Pakistan because apart from the colour of the wedding every evening there was discussions with her um, colleagues from the Pakistan People's Party about how to try and overturned General Zia, the military dictator, who'd been in power then for over 11 years. So I came back to London thinking, there's no way I want to go back to reporting local news. I want to go and live in Pakistan. But when I went to speak to foreign editors, they all said, we're not interested in Pakistan. General Zia has been there for years. But we are interested in Afghanistan, where the Russians were. So for that reason, I decided to go and bathe myself in
0: Peshawar in northwest Pakistan near the border with Afghanistan and started going in and out with the Mujahideen. Wow, well, well summarized because <laughs> there was a whole <laughs> lot more that went with that. You know, the thing about the Russians in Afghanistan and the thing about Afghanistan itself is it's a very historic country. And for a, for a young journalist to get in there and start writing about it, you must have had to get some sort of grip on its history, on where the people within were coming from. Did you do a lot of homework? Or was all the homework done on the ground when you got there?
1: Yes, I can't say that. I mean, it wasn't as though I had some great passion for Afghanistan or anything before I went there. It was really because I had um, the foreign editors who said, look, this is what we're interested in. So, um, I mean, all I knew about Afghanistan really was once I'd worked in a restaurant where the owners had travelled there during the sort of hippie trail and gone in a car from London overland to Kabul and talked very romantically about... Chicking Street and um, what Kabul was like in those days. So I did have quite a, a rosy image of it. I wasn't quite like that. But, of course, once I started travelling um, with the Mujahideen, fighting the Russians in and out, then I read a lot. And it's, uh, I mean, most of the people I was travelling with were illiterate, but they have an incredible oral culture and they tell the most amazing stories about their battles and they loved to talk to me about the fact that the British had um, been involved in Afghanistan three times in wars, which the Afghans um, say that they won all three. I think the British feel that the last one was a draw. (laughs) Um, But I early on met Hamid Karzai Mm. and he said to me to understand Afghanistan, you have to understand the tribes, and took me to his house for dinner that first time I met him. And it was full of elders from um, southern Afghanistan, from Kandahar and Urizgan and Helmand. And they all just told the most incredible stories, um, most of which seemed to involve killing people. Mm -hmm. But um, it was sort of, you know, made it very clear to me early on that all the different, with his tribes and um, rivalries between them and how that really was key to understanding Afghanistan.
0: I want to come back to Hamid Kazain in just a minute, but those stories, were those the sort of stories that your for your editors were looking for? um i mean the stories that
1: you stories had to hear more stories that fascinated mm. me i yes. mean what my editors were looking for was you know the fight against the russians so what was happening inside afghanistan and those journalists um as us based in Peshawar at the time we used to spend all our time trying to get into afghanistan and then actually when you were inside it was pretty miserable because you were you know nothing to eat you were walking long distances and um, trying to avoid being bombed by the Russians or stepping on a landmine and you spent a lot of the time then kind of wishing that you were back mm-hmm. <laughs> out the other side and there was no, Afghanistan then A the huge difference from now is it was completely cut off There was it was so isolated from the rest of the world, there was no uh, not even a phone connection you always had to go to Pakistan to make a phone call, so when, once I was in Afghanistan for a few weeks. I was completely, you know, cut off, and um, which in some ways was good, because it did mean when you came back to Pakistan and wrote about what you'd seen, you'd actually, you know, really spent quite a lot of time
0: um, witnessing things yeah yeah as unlike these days where you can just pop yeah. things through very quickly even on your cell phone you can Absolutely. deliver your material yeah. very very I mean, different. now i can file from uh, on top of
1: a mountain in the hindu kush or in the middle of the desert no
0: problem and so you continue to do just coming back to hamid kazai i think you got to know him really quite well as you did a number of people I, I mean one can call them friends informants contacts networks but you had a whole string of people that you were able to talk to, was trust an issue? And tell us a little bit about your your connections with Hamid.
1: Yes, well so when I started out in Bashar I was only 21 and then I think you know a lot of the Afghans were a bit baffled by this young girl that had come to live there and I didn't really hang out with the other journalists. I was so fascinated by Afghanistan that I spent most of my time with Afghans and listening to their stories. That's what I was writing about. Um, And Hamid Karzai I met quite early on, because really, to be completely honest, I had no idea what a foreign correspondent did at that point. And I knew that there were seven different Mujahideen groups all fighting the Russians. So it seems to make sense for me to go and see each of the groups. And um, actually not many journalists did do that because some groups were much bigger and more effective than others. And as the main um, interest of people was to get inside and see the fighting, they were going to just really a couple of groups. were the ones that were easiest to get inside with so Hamid Karzai at that time was spokesperson for the smallest of the seven groups and very few people came to speak to him so when i went to speak to him i think he was very pleased to have someone to talk to and also he was at that time anyway a great anglophile he loved somerset morn stories and shelley's poetry and tennyson and cabaret's chocolate um and even sort of english movies uh, i think his favorite film is goodbye mr chips um so we kind of got on very well and um and so and i ended up I mean I was living in Peshaw for a couple of years and I was living very near him so we became close friends and I went into Afghanistan with him to Kandahar in 1988. It was the only time actually during the whole of the jihad against the Russians that he went inside because he wasn't a fighter, he was a spokesperson.
0: It's coming back to what you said, you know, at the time you didn't know what a foreign correspondent was supposed to do. Well, for sure you do now. Uh, and I suppose <laughs> what a foreign correspondent has to do is make short, digestible, accessible sense of very, very complex, changeable and difficult situations, which you've been yeah, able to unpack I mean, in your book. But as a correspondent, you would have had to, uh, you know, praise all that into things that are very short, difficult
1: yes and i think what you know i was very naive when i started out and what surprised me going to Bashar and actually seeing the fight was of course you know it's very different and much more complicated than you read in the papers yeah. and um i guess i had seen it like many people as a very black and white thing that the afghan Mujahideen were these sort of heroic fighters with old rifles, old Lee Enfields, and a kind of rope sandals, and fighting this massive um, Russian army, the Red Army, the most powerful army on Earth. Um, um, and so it was almost a kind of romantic story that these Mujahideen were managing to turn back the Russians. In fact, you know, when you're there on the ground, you realise it's a bit more complicated than that. And actually some of these Mujahideen groups were doing pretty despicable things and um, and I found it quite difficult. I wrote a piece at one point about how, you know, they were sort of um, doing some really cruel things to prisoners and playing um, polo, this a kind of Afghan polo, which they usually use a goat instead of a bull, were using sort of prisoners of war. Mm. Um, and also how disorganized they were, which I always felt was one of the reasons they managed to defeat the Russians because they never knew what they were going to be doing next. So it was very hard for the Russians to sort of predict their movements. Yeah. Um and I wrote a piece one day about all of that and how, you know, it was not so black and white um, and some of the other journalists that were there, American journalists, were very angry because they were very ideological and they felt that I had written something that was sort of against what the story was supposed to be um, at that point i didn 't realize that you know mm. the stories were supposed to be something or other I thought you just went and reported on what you saw, and that is what I did, and that 's what i 've always done ever since, but you know sometimes there is a point of view about a yeah, story, and yeah. it's quite hard to go against that. It's, it's a, let's in a re- strange way, I think, because I was so young, I and then I didn't. It, it was sort of easier for me to go against it, and I was lucky because I was working for the Financial Times, and I had a foreign editor who backed what I was writing.
0: Yes, rather less romantic and more traumatic, you know, certainly the, the goat story and all sorts of other things. And I think that you also touch on Guantanamo Bay, which is, and the whole issue of 9-11 comes up. I mean, this spans, we're talking about the early part, but this spans a huge amount of time and a huge amount of activity. But there was a point where actually your, um, your stay in, in uh, Afghanistan was nearly truncated. You were deported together with photographer Justin Sutcliffe. Very, very scary incident.
1: Yeah, not from Afghanistan, from Pakistan. Sorry, Pakistan. Um, And, yes, that was just a couple of months after 9-11, because, I mean, a recurring theme of the book, really, is Pakistan's military intelligence, ISI, and there whole involvement in all of this so going right back to the jihad against the russians when the cia used pakistan's isi to channel the weapons to the mujahideen because it was supposed to be a covert operation um and that made isi very powerful and then later on after 9-11 when the west went back into Afghanistan, um, ISI by then, they were behind the Taliban being formed and had helped them and continued to do so even though Pakistan had um, agreed with the Bush administration after 9-11 to be their ally. I mean, they didn't have a lot of choice because the Bush administration said to them, you're right with us or you're against us. And Pakistan's then... President General Musharraf says in his own book that he war-gamed them as an adversary and realized that Pakistan could not take on the United States. So it doesn't really sound like the words of a a great ally. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was, like many journalists after 9-11, in in Quetta, um, reporting on what was going on and sort of waiting for the Taliban regime to fall to be able to cross over And um, I learned from some of my old contacts who, in the tribes, um, the Noorzai tribe up on the border, that ISI was still giving weapons to the Taliban, even though Pakistan was supposed to be on the side of the Americans. So I was investigating that, and in fact, Hamid Karzai was also kind of helping me on that, and he then had gone into afghanistan himself i spoke to him one evening by satellite phone from his brother's house then went back to my hotel and at that time there was a curfew at nine o'clock you couldn't go out after that and about two o'clock in the morning i got a knock on my door and i went to the door and looked through the peephole and could see the duty manager with uh, five guys in gray shower kameez and Aviator glasses that were clearly ISI, and he said to me, "Oh, there are some guests for you." So I said to the manager, "Well, it's two in the morning. I'm i sleeping. Tell them to come back tomorrow morning." And he said, no, no, it's an emergency. I said, well, I'm sorry, they'll have to come back at 7. And I started going back towards my bed. And as I did, they, he obviously had the key, but they broke the chain on the door and came in and arrested me. Um, took my phone, and then I was taken down to reception. It amused me because they made me pay my bill <laughs>
0: hmm. um, you know christina, um, I mean this would be in, i mean this and the story goes on and it gets worse um this would be enough to put any any young journalist off doing this for the rest of their lives. We're going to take i I would just like to ask you one more thing, but we do have to take a quick crossing so Christina, are you able to just hold on for two minutes? Yes, of course. Lovely. Well, just stay with us. We're talking to Christina Lam about her book called Farewell Kabul and uh, from Afghanistan to a more dangerous world. And I just want to find out what her feeling is on the situation in, in Afghanistan now and what her insights would be. But right now we're going to take a quick crossing to find out what's uh, with the comrades with Kim Laxton. Hi, Kim. Hi, good afternoon and I'm so excited
2: to say that the 90th Comrades Marathon was absolutely fantastic. It started at half past five this morning and about 22,000 entrants started their journey from Durban to Pietermaritzburg. Absolutely beautiful day, the weather was great, the humidity subsided from yesterday and it was perfect conditions for a very exciting race. Initially, it was really anybody's race, both in the male and the female events. With regards to the males, there was quite a lot of jostling for hot spots right in the beginning, but there was a small group uh, with Mozingi, Moshewa, Charles and Shani that took the lead at around about sort of, around about the 60k mark. At about the 70k mark, um, Gift Kalehe, the, the brother of Andrew Kalehe, former winner of the event, Took the lead and he did so very, very powerfully. And he cruised into Peter Pietermaritzburg, looked absolutely fantastic as he rounded into the Oval Stadium and across uh, the banner with much pomp and ceremony from the crowd that adored him. Um, and it was really fantastic to see a South African take the comrades' title now for the third year in a row. Another absolute highlight of today and honestly this was one of the most exciting comments that we've seen for a very, very long time. Um, The Caroline Borsman, the winner of the Two Oceans Marathon earlier this year, um, coached by Lindsay Perry and running under the um, the likes of Nick Bester at the Nedbank Club, um, decided from early on to take take the lead, and got, we all thought, okay, maybe she's gone a little bit too quickly, but needless to say, from about thirty k's, she got a lead on the Nigelieva twins, and Elena, who was going for her ninth um, Comrades win, which would have equaled Bruce, Fordyce, Bruce Fordyce's nine Comrades wins as well, absolutely was blown away. Caroline just went, she she stopped a couple of times, she walked, she went, she had a couple of toilet breaks, she completely entertained everybody in South Africa, kind of took these very huge, deep breath whenever she stopped to walk. But it was completely tactical. She decided to do this from the beginning and she cruised into the stadium. She was in the top 25 men um, and she blew the field away. Shanae Bosman coming second. So South Africa doing absolutely fantastically both in the male and the female races. Now uh, it's about almost like four hours, four and a half hours to go before the final cutoff. And uh, I just have to say that they are still thousands and thousands of people out on the road. Beautiful day, quite warm, but uh, we'll probably see about 50% of the field coming in the last two hours. So, the race continues, and individual people making their own histories and their own uh, breaking their own records. So um, just just wonderful to say that the 2015 Comrades
0: Garrison was quite a spectacle. This is uh, Kim Norton for SAFM Sports. Thanks very much, Kim. And uh, certainly it does sound like it's been quite a spectacle. Well, we were talking earlier to Christina Lamb, who's a foreign correspondent, UK foreign correspondent, who's written a book called Farewell, Kabul. Christina, I, d- I just can't let you go without asking. I mean, there's so much more to discuss about your book. But you you open with the closing as it were the open with um not exactly getting in but the leaving you you know um which took place october 2014 but things are far from over do you think in all the years that you've been going there it's given you some insight into what is happening right now there yes i mean and also just the
1: whole you know how we don't seem to be able to end wars anymore (laughs) anywhere Um, but the current situation um, you know one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I felt so many people had been killed in this war, 3,500 NATO soldiers but also thousands of Afghans and Pakistanis and a trillion dollars spent and you know what had been achieved um, and you know it's quite a mixed picture at the moment some things are better like the health system and their Far more children at school, there are eight million Afghan children at school, but still half the children in Afghanistan have never set foot in a school and The Taliban has not gone away. I mean one hundred and forty thousand NATO troops with all their sophisticated uh, equipment and weaponry were not able to defeat them so there's still a lot of fighting going on around the country. There are not many foreign troops anymore there's twelve thousand but and they're not really involved in combat operations um, and the Afghan army which has been built up by the NATO forces and it's big now, is about 352,000 army and police is taking huge casualties, I mean it's really not sustainable so um, you know it's hard to be very optimistic about mm. the future and I suppose the thing I get most um, upset about is the situation of women because we made such a big thing about how Afghan women were going to have a much better life and actually it's still really the most dangerous place in the world to be a
0: woman so, yes, and indeed, I, come, I mentioned earlier that you were the co-author of I Am Malala that you wrote together with, with Young Malala there. Yeah. Uh, which which in itself is a remarkable book, so thank you very much for that one as well. So Thank you. It, oh, it was great working with yes, you. Yes, it, it's really a compelling story, but coming from such a sort of a personal voice that you managed to do, as is this one, a very personal voice, and, and an extraordinary cover with this soldier carrying a a rifle with flowers tucked in the end of it it's really so is it really goodbye Christina are you never going back
1: um, funnily enough I'm going next Monday <laughs> uh, I think the title's a bit misleading it's so well couple it's more um, so well by the sort of foreign troops um, I still intend to keep going back and reporting in fact you know I feel quite strongly that we shouldn't just forget about it and I think um, a lot of Western governments uh, Britain certainly um, are hoping that people just think well that's finished and you know we don't need to think about it anymore and actually that not the case there's Mm. still lots of attacks going on lots of fighting and um, you know things and as we've seen with Iraq you know we ended up going back into Iraq so
0: you can't just sort of decide that something's over. Yeah, and you hope can, and that You can never say goodbye to war. That seems to be. Well, I look forward to talking to you, Christina, once again, you know, perhaps as you'll be filing from the mountaintops. I've no doubt that there'll be more stories coming out of you <laughs> that we can look forward Thank to. You. Thanks very much for your time. Take care. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Christina Lamb and her book is called Farewell Kabul, published incidentally by William Collins. It's going to take some reading. It's a big fat book, but it's definitely something to give you a little bit more insight. In a minute a little bit of insight into literary festivals stay with us. SFM literature with Nancy Richards. So the debate around literary festivals in South Africa who is isn't should shouldn't be at them is one that we do look forward to hearing a lot more about here on the on the show with statements from writer Tando Mkolazana refusing to attend any more, as it were, white festivals. Uh, Professor uh, Adam Habib saying that book fairs need to break the class divide. As they say, a very important debate. And as uh, French Literary Festival director Anne Donald says, festivals themselves are the ideal place to be having such debate. In fact, it's not only welcomed, but encouraged. And she quoted writer Damon Galgut as saying, books teach you that the world isn't made in your own image. And through books, we can learn so much more about others. But on all of that, I spoke to Christopher Hope at the Friendship Literary Festival. He was uh, kind of the father of the Friendship Literary Festival. And he told us how it all began.
3: Well, I suppose about um, seven or eight years ago, it suddenly occurred to me that there wasn't, in South Africa, the sort of writer's festival that I'd been invited to and going to in India and Europe and South America and Canada, and I wondered why, and I thought, well, it seems to me we could do as well here, and more than that, there were numbers of younger writers I knew who, in a sense, were beginning to write, but had nowhere to take their writing to, no chance of meeting journalists or publishers or agents and I thought, well, I should try and find somewhere which would be Congenial, pleasant, available, and see whether I couldn't bring writers, publishers, journalists, international writers, and particularly younger writers together in a good place. And I came here to Crunchook. I spoke to the the people in the town, and they said, yeah, we'd like to do that, which was really very encouraging. And I spoke to uh, Jenny Hobbs, a fellow writer, and and she said, well, look, you know, I'm I'm in on this. So we started, and it was astonishing. We, We had no money, but we had the goodwill of the town behind us. And then a little bit of sponsorship. And suddenly we had a town full of writers. And uh, I think we sold 1,200 tickets that first year, and I know now from this year's sale that there are about 12,000 tickets sold. So Frenchhook works. I was director for the first four years, and I think this is the year eight. Uh, Of the overall festival. So we've been going strong for some time now.
0: Well, with the first decade um, looming, what do you see as its future? Because inevitably things change and morph and develop.
3: There's a way to go yet, because what we've not managed to do, in my opinion, is to find a way of bringing to Franchuk younger writers who are stuck in distant places and who find it very difficult to show their work to publishers, to meet other writers in particular, because writing is a very very lonely business and what friendship offers to writers is a chance of getting together of feeling at home with each other and indeed of meeting all sorts of different writers and this is very encouraging for young writers and i remember how i had to start as a young writer there was nobody to talk to nobody to advise you nobody to encourage you and we, we need to find a way of doing more of that and we need to find a way of bringing our own writers forward without writers a country has no picture of itself.
0: I suppose as much as it needs to draw in, you talk about distance writers, I suppose one needs to be going to the distance to start I, another centre.
3: I think this is exactly right and I think what one wants is a, a festival which would be at home in somewhere like Soweto or somewhere like Kailitsha, so that you attract a f- from the immediate community and you also, of course, attract an enormous degree of interest from international uh, writers who I know, I know from my own experience they love coming to, to, to Franschhoek, but they would adore to come to what they would see let me put this very bluntly what they would see as being much more authentically African uh, because, as I say, what I think it, it, without, through no fault of its own what, the dimension that Franschhoek lacks is that degree of centeredness in in a place which needs it. Greatly, So yes, I mean, it's something I would, I would love to see. And as I say, I know from my international colleagues that it was, would be something that would, would inevitably attract them. And this is very important because you want to bring the very best writers in the world to South Africa. And this is one way of doing it. And you, you want to introduce them to younger writers. Who you know, It's a way of saying to younger writers, look, he's doing it, Rushdie's doing it, Graham Swift is doing it, Rose Tremaine is doing it, you can do it other African countries as well. So you you enrich the mix and you inspire, but above all, you comfort and encourage younger writers who might still be trying to find their way.
0: You know, to an extent, it's already happening. Uh, It's maybe not being sponsored, but it's certainly happening on on, a grassroots level.
3: Mm. Oh, indeed. I mean, what has been striking, uh, and if I may say so, kind of rather warming, has been since we started the Franchoke Festival, it's been interesting to see. There are now book festivals, writers' festivals, uh, that range from small festivals in small towns, across the country. There are larger festivals like the Open Book in, in Cape Town and there are medium-sized festivals like the Nice Literary Festival, none of which existed before Franschuk showed that it could be done and the more of it, the better because everybody benefits from it and there's a, there, clearly there is a, a hunger for it.
0: I suppose what's lacking is sponsorship, marketing, awareness. Maybe we just need a, a few big boys to come on board with with that sort of thing.
3: Yes, we do. And when you, if you, I mean, if you look at the, the way it's done, in, say, the United States or in Singapore or in the UK. And um, Invariably, there are newspapers that come on board. There are corporate sponsors. There are people who wish to associate their name and their company and their firm and their business with emerging arts and of course it's it's a two-way street both benefit something I find really peculiar about South Africa generally speaking is that there isn't a long tradition of this Uh, and it's a great pity because we do not invest in our arts in the same way we have no Rockefeller Center we have no Guggenheim Uh, we, we simply do not put that kind of muscle and that sort of money behind our younger artists as a result of which we export them our singers have become very famous in Vienna, but not that famous in Cape Town. Uh, our painters do extremely well in Amsterdam uh, and not all that well in uh, this is There's a long tradition of this. It's like our best fruit. Off it goes to, for, to, for somebody else's appreciation. Well, I'd like to see more of it stay here. And one of the ways of keeping it here is for people to put some muscle and some money behind it.
0: There you go. There's some thoughts, Christopher Hope. And I hope we'll be hearing more on that, uh, all about the Literary Festival and the debates around it on this show very, very soon. In a minute, we'll be riding the Samusa Express. Stay with us. SFM Literature. Well, next, we're riding the Samusa Express. It's a rather racy-sounding title of a book which is, in fact, a collection of 24 stories exploring issues of marriage, religious belief and many other allied issues faced by professional, well-educated Muslim women. Well, to explain on our, on the line, we have Zahira Gina, who co-edited the book with uh, together with Hasina Asfat. and I think that it all began. Um, Zahira, hi! Nice to have you with hi. us.
4: Hi, hi, thanks, Nancy. Yes,
0: yes, and uh, they are a PhD, a mathematician as well. But it all began with a very simple conversation that you had with another woman about about this process of the samosa express or the samosa run. Just explain to us what that is.
4: Okay, um, the samosa run is when Women are of eligible age, and they want. They need to get married, and families actually arrange for a boy to come home to come and see them. So the boy comes with his family to come and come and to come and see her, and there's always a spread of samosas and cakes and things like that. And then the boy and the girl spend a few minutes together, and they chat together, and that's when the boy then decides whether he wants to take it further, and the lady that um, actually initiated this visit would phone the the parents and say well I want to take it further or oh, well that he's not interested and um, a cousin of mine was um, she was 30 at that time and she was a CA and I actually asked her for her photo because I wanted to initiate something like that and she was quite content and very independent and she said no she doesn't want to do it that way she wants to do it the way she wants to be in control of the whole process and that got me thinking about uh, social and religious expectations and uh, of course, about the identity of professional Muslim women.
0: Yes, I bet it did. What about yourself? Did you go through such a similar samosa run? I went through many, many. I oh. went <laughs> through
4: about uh, 35 of them. Oh. It used to be weekends going through making samosas and presenting samosas to various bachelors that would come in with their families and scrutinize you, and it's the most uncomfortable situation ever. Um, I however did not meet my husband like that um, after many years at the age of 31 which is far old, um, it's, which is is quite old for Muslim women. Um, I met him through it. It was also an arranged thing, but he didn't come to see me at home. He came to see me at university. Mm. So It was in a different um, setting.
0: Yes rather, yes, rather fewer samosas. If the, if the young man, I mean we're not going to question so much about your uh, situation, but after 35 out of these meetings, if the young man simply says no, I'm not interested in pursuing this any further, does the does the young woman have any any uh, any say at all herself?
4: No, no. It depends. It depends largely on whether the man wants to. This is this common practice? It's Zaheim. a common practice in with Indian families.
0: Yeah.
4: Uh, not so much with Muslim families. Um, like I mentioned earlier to you, we had that interview with Howard Solomon and. Um, Voice of Cape And uh, she found it A very different practice Because she said With the Capetonian Malays, It doesn't usually Happen that way But it happens With Indian families And it happens With Indian families Here in South Africa In India In England It happens Across the board And even if you look At these Bollywood movies um, It's a common practice Where the girl The boy's family Will be sitting And the girl Would come in With a tray She would be all dressed up And the boy And his family Would look at her That's how it Was like
0: Yeah Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly happened to 27 people, because I think that what you and uh, Hasina have put together is a collection of 27 experiences and stories of other women.
4: Um, yes, it is a collection, but it's not a collection of only the Samusa-ran. Okay. Um, uh, the book is titled, Riding the Samusa Express, which mm. is symbolic of a train journey through life. So um, each woman in, on this journey, it goes through their life experience of going towards marriage and beyond. because. Us as Muslim women, we look at marriage as a central concept. Every woman desires to be married. It's very different, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually, um, it comes from the religious belief that we must compete. Half of our uh, religious beliefs come from being married. So a Muslim woman would always aspire to be married. So that would be the central fo- focus, and then the journey beyond. So the book looks at stories, deals with authentic stories written by Muslim women about their journeys, towards being married and married and beyond. So it looks at also um, the identity as Muslim
0: women. I think it's also, you, you say very firmly that the book is not a research project, but it is has been a means of giving women who would otherwise not have been heard an opportunity to tell their particular story. Were, were the women that you spoke to keen and willing to share what they had to say?
4: Um, well, we put out, uh, this
0: project actually started in
4: 2012 and we put out a call for stories. So um, women actually sent through their stories, and then we chose the best stories which resonated with the book, with the whole idea of the book.
0: Can you give us an insight into some of the stories?
4: Okay. Um, like I said, the book is divided into three parts, mm. and the first part is the journey towards marriage. So that, that would be like um, the whole idea, like certain stories deal with girls wanting to get married and having all these suitors come and see them, and these suitors finding something wrong with them. Because if you, look, if, you, if you look at this whole concept Of suitors coming to see you like this They're only looking at physical mm. They're not looking at anything beyond Because you can't really get much From a 15 minute conversation anyway So um, there are stories about uh, women uh, Having these suitors come in Of there's one story where the lady's baking biscuits Heart biscuits And her mother tells her there's this boy Coming to come and see her And now she's looking at these heart biscuits And in her mind she's thinking Am I desperate? Am I going to portray myself as being desperate to this man? to say that I'm presenting you with heart biscuits. Please marry me. Mm -hmm. So the stories of that, the stories of of the actual um, culture of how we as Indian women get married, so those stories of that, the stories of um, women that um, um, have had uh, prospective suitors interested in them but have been younger than them. So um, the girl was 25 and the boy was 23 and his mother didn't agree with it and how that whole relationship fell off. Then the second part of the book is uh, identity of the Muslim woman, and it looks at stories of how um, Muslim women identify with themselves in their cultural, religious beliefs, as well as with societal expectations. Um, so my story, for example, at that particular point, I was um, I was doing a PhD, but there was also a mother, and I had just gotten married, and I had just had this baby, and it was going. I had to go through this, all these cultural expectations of preparing things for Ramadan and being the good daughter-in-law and living with in-laws and that type of thing and also being the PhD mom. So it was juggling those type of things. So who did I identify as? Did I ad- identify with being a PhD mom or did I ad- identify with being Umi? And Umi is the Arabic term for mother. So it was it's stories that deal with how do Muslim women identify with themselves. And then the last part is about stories of marriage and beyond where we deal with stories of Women who have gotten married, they've lived with their partners, their partners have died, passed away. How do they deal with that? Also, a very important thing um, that our Indian families haven't quite accepted is postnatal depression. Mm. The stories which deal with that as well. How do these women um, deal with postnatal depression? What were the taboos regarding that, that type of
0: thing? And, um, you know, in the third part, marriage and beyond, the husband dies, or maybe they get divorced, or maybe there's an affair. Have you touched on those issues Um, as well? We haven't had the affair, but I think just because it's
4: authentic stories, it's very hard for a Muslim woman to actually attach her her name to a story like that. There's a a big taboo regarding actually exposing herself in terms of uh, affairs. So we didn't get a story about that. But we got stories about divorce, divorced women, Um, We've got stories from women whose partners have passed away, and how they dealt with that. And getting married the second time, and expecting to have a child within um, within the first few months of married, and you're not married, and you're not like quite comfortable with your partner, and how the the woman dealt with that as well. It's authentic stories, stories written from women from um, their heart stories.
0: Just going back to the thirty was it thirty-year-old, chartered accountant that you mentioned. Uh, you know, and that would seem that perhaps that's the way forward. That women would stand up and say, I, "I'm not happy about this tradition." But how difficult is that? How difficult it is it for Muslim women to change the nature of their identity, how they fit into this complex system?
4: Um, well, they are. They are. It is changing. Mm. Um, there is a definite move to uh, meeting boys. Lots of the girls are opting to meeting meeting men like at coffee shops, but it's still the arranged thing. It's still that, oh, this person will say, there is this boy, he's single, he's looking for somebody, would you like to meet him? But then there's a shift from meeting him at home to meeting him somewhere else. And there are those those women that have opted now that they um, they don't want to get married. They want to um, enjoy their careers, they want to enjoy their independence. They are, but it's still, there is still this uh Believe within the families that they want to have their daughters married. There's, it's not so much as, um, um, there are some girls who have chosen the independent life but it still hasn't much, it hasn't shifted much.
0: I don't know if either you or Hasina felt this but listening to these women's stories I imagine that you would have been wanting to interject and say but what about or this or that, and question them. Have you Have you resisted that temptation or have you made any comment with each story? Um,
4: we have, uh, we have, we've met the authors at a later date. We have discussed with them ways forward. We have discussed with them their opinions and what you know, like uh, what lines, what what made them write those stories. Um, is that what you're looking at?
0: Well, yes, but I wondered if you had any thoughts about some of the stories that that you would like to sort of take the debate further with them. And I suppose that leads me to my next question is, the book itself sounds like it would be very thought-provoking for many young women and older women. Have you had sort of workshops around it, discussions around it, debates around it? Um,
4: Actually, we had an event last week, Saturday, Mm. where we had uh, a women empowerment event. Because what this book does, uh, it allows Muslim women to express themselves. It uh, allows others to hear Muslim women's voices. So we had a women empowerment event where we got uh, women from different religions together. And uh, we just let them speak and uh, talk about empowering themselves and speaking about, um, it was mainly Indian women, but it was from different religions. So we had Hindu women and Christian women from, um, and we got them to, we spoke about the book, and we gave we had a little review about what the book does, and we actually got them to speak about their problems and speak. Because what uh, Indian women do tend to do is they don't. Um, there's there's still a lot of a lot of taboos regarding expression and um, having their voices heard. So in that sense, there has been some sort of um, platform where we have discussed it.
0: Sounds like a story that's not yet over, and I'm sure that you could get many, many more stories. Yes, do you absolutely. have a Do you have a Facebook page or a website yes, we or do. A blog? Yes, we have a Facebook page yeah. and we've got a
4: website as well.
0: And is it called Writing the Samosa Express?
4: The Facebook page is called The Samosa Express: to Marriage and Beyond, because that was supposed to be the initial title. Okay. But um, the website is Writing uh, the Samosa Express. Okay. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, um, and then yeah. I
4: just yeah. want to say one yeah. one more thing. It's not, um, you know, this whole idea of finding Mr. Right. Mm. Although we we still look at it within the cultural domain, it, I think it affects women all over. That's why we have there's so many of these internet dating sites that are going on. Uh, women, I think, out there just want to find Mr. Right, and um, these stories actually portray different women's experiences of finding Mr. Right. And although it's a Muslim, it's based on Muslim women's experiences. It actually resonates with all women. Yeah, out there.
0: yeah so it's yeah. not just for Muslim women. Gosh, Zahira, thank you very much, and well done for putting that together. I bet it was an education in itself. Thank you for Thanks. sharing. Take care. Thanks for having us. Next. Zahira, Gina, putting uh, putting into text into context the stories of Muslim Muslim women, but it certainly sounds like a book for all women, for all people indeed. Writing the Samosa Express. It's published by Mojaji. Website is Writing the Samosa Express, and the Facebook page is the Samosa Express Marriage and Beyond. It's